Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And it is a gorgeous day in Atlanta today. It feels like spring, but... Sarah, you know, I was taking this walk earlier in the sunshine, and I was wondering if you'd thought about the last days lately. You know, read any revelation, maybe thought about how you'd like to spend the apocalypse? No, I've not, Katie. Well, I really think you should, and I think you should repent, and I think you should reform. I would like to go burn your books and your makeup, and I want you to stop telling jokes. I'm really not interested in that, not interested in burning my things, especially my Botticelli paintings and my priceless books. Um, so, no thanks. I'll pass. Sorry, Sarah. It's, it's not me. I was channeling our subject for today, Girolamo Savonarola. And I read a good quote about him earlier in an article by Donald Weinstein in History Today. And he was quoting Machiavelli, who was thinking of Savonarola when he wrote, Unarmed prophets are bound to fail. So Savonarola is known as a book burner, a destroyer of Botticelli paintings, and his sermons are full of fire and brimstone, and that's probably how you know him. But he's also a reformer of the church, the government, the scourge of Lorenzo de' Medici, and an enemy of Pope Alexander VII. He died by fire, and some think he should be made a saint. Who was this man? We're going to take you to his early life, like we like to do. He was born in 1452 in Ferrara, and he got his book learning and also his moral education from his grandfather, Michel, who was both a doctor and a medieval scholar. And Grandpa's sense of morality definitely rubbed off on the child Girolamo. He seems like a pretty serious kid. At one point, I think in his teens, he references the blind wickedness of the peoples of Italy, which sounds like something I also would have written in my middle school diary. Oh, that's pretty dramatic, Katie. That's a very dramatic 12-year-old. So he gets a liberal arts degree and starts studying medicine, but he leaves it all behind in 1475 to become a Dominican priest in Bologna. Right, he's found his calling. It's not in medicine, it's in religious life. And in 1482, Savonarola left for Florence, which was called the city of his destiny in many of my sources. And he became a lecturer at the convent of San Marco, but he doesn't really impress anyone. His sermons are kind of boring. He's not a great public speaker. He doesn't make much of a mark on the city. And so he leaves for a while, returns to Bologna to act as a master of studies in 1487, and then embarks on a year of traveling and preaching. And sometime during this time, he has a revelation and everything changes for him. Yeah, and he returns to Florence in 1490, and this is when he begins to make his reputation for great sermons. And, yeah, like you've said, something happens to him spiritually, but something also happens to him in terms of public speaking. He's really compelling now. A lot of his sermons are prophetic, too. He predicts the date of Innocent VIII's death, for example, and... The theme of most of them is corruption, corruption of the city and the government and the church that have all been ruined by vices. And he wants reform, and that's what he's proposing through these radical sermons. He believed that the church would need to be scourged before it could be renewed. And he preached again a lot about the apocalypse and the end days. And through all the fire and brimstone. Yes, it was was very fiery. He also preached specifically about how corrupt and greedy the Medici are, which makes him a powerful enemy in Lorenzo de' Medici. 
While he's advocating asceticism, he's also busy predicting Lorenzo's death. So Lorenzo de' Medici is known for some pretty amazing accomplishments. We've already talked about some of them in our Pazzi Conspiracy podcast, mostly how he managed to survive the Pazzi Conspiracy, but he's also known as the father of the Italian Renaissance. He's brilliant, he's important, he's from a huge, powerful family, and he's got a lot of personal talents, like uh, he writes poetry, he's a patron of the arts, but he's not necessarily loved. And one historian, who we also mentioned in our earlier podcast, referred to his style of government as a benevolent tyranny. So Lorenzo wants Savonarola to stop these sermons. They're they're threatening him and they're threatening the power of the Medici. And he he does what Medici the Medici family does best, which is to to try to threaten, try to bribe. Um but Savonarola is immune to this. He he's not a player in this whole no, thing. No, and he lives by a very strict moral code. He doesn't just apply it to other people. He also applies it to himself. And so none of this works, but soon Lorenzo gets very ill, and there's this legend that Savonarola refused to give Lorenzo absolution in his dying days, but there's actually no evidence to support this. It's not true. It's a slur on Savonarola's character, and he did give a blessing to Lorenzo, his enemy, before he died. Which, Katie and I were talking about this earlier, but I don't quite understand why Lorenzo would have Savonarola at his death when you... I don't, I mean, unless it's just because he was such a prominent and powerful figure. But I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of nice, uh, Medici-friendly priests in town. Probably Medici know. family members, you know? If you have an idea, drop us an email, historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. But going back to Sifonarola, he's only growing in popularity during this time. This message of reform in government and in the church has really struck a chord with the Florentines. And now that Lorenzo the Magnificent is dead, what will happen to Savonarola? So the Medici are overthrown and exiled when Charles VIII of France invades Italy. Um, Savonarola had predicted this, and he tries to, to make it happen. He sees his chance to to make the changes that he deems so necessary for Florence. Right, knocking everything down so you can Starting over. rebuild. Yeah. And if that sounds a little traitorous to you, it also did to Pope Alexander VI, who wasn't the greatest pope. If you remember our podcast on Lucrezia Borgia, this was her father. So, yes, the pope had several children, actually. And, of course, this kind of behavior is the kind of thing that Savonarola wanted to stamp out completely. He thought the papacy had become a mockery, or if not the papacy in general, because he did still have respect for the Pope, but the clergy wasn't living like they should with their vows. And this Pope in particular really bugs Savonarola. So Savonarola basically takes over in Florence, but it wasn't a move of ambition. His motive wasn't about power. He wanted to dedicate Florence to God. He felt that both his religion and Florence had strayed too far from the path, and he wanted to bring them back to the fold. And he did some pretty fantastic things in Florence. His contemporaries were amazed with how he'd managed to turn the city around. And as government corruption is still prevalent pretty much everywhere, it's a pretty fantastic accomplishment. But of course, people are jealous of this kind of success, especially if you're if you're striking down a system of patronage and bribes that's been in place for ages. People are going to be upset about that. His opposition is a party known as the Arabiati, and I will 
try very hard not to say arrabbiata like the sauce throughout the rest of this podcast. They were Florentine, and they had some powerful friends, the Duke of Milan and, of course, the Pope. And the Pope had an axe to grind with Savonarola, not just because of the corruption stuff. He wanted Florence to join the Holy League or the Holy Alliance, which was a group against the King of France that somewhat united Italians. It's maybe a precursor to the Risorgimento, but it required Florence to join, and they didn't want to. This could have been because of old Florentine ties to France, or it could have been Savonarola who was in the way. But either way, the Pope thought the best way to get around this was to target Savonarola. So a brief from Alexander to Savonarola appears in July 1495. And in it, he's praising Savonarola. You know, you're doing a really, really great job. Such a great job, in fact, that you should come to Rome and tell me all about these amazing prophecies you're having, because I'd really like to hear. Savonarola's response is along the lines of, uh, yeah, you know, I think I'm not feeling great. Maybe we could do this. Some other time, because he knows it's a trap. He knows Alexander is bad news. You heard in our Lucrezia Borgia podcast how the Borgias like to dispatch with their enemies, and Savonarola wants no part of it. But the Pope is not going to be put off quite that easily, and Savonarola is an obstacle to what he wants, what he wants to happen. And so in September, he sends another brief. This time he's saying, go to Bologna, or I'll excommunicate you. Savonarola is still unwilling to accede to these bizarre and kind of frightening demands from the Pope, though. And pressured by the Holy League, the Pope writes another brief in September forbidding Savonarola to preach anymore. He relents a bit near Lent and doesn't enforce it, and this is when Savonarola gives what some call his best sermons. But uh, don't think he was, you know, taking it easy and playing it cool and, and laying off a little bit because he'd riled up the Pope, because... He's still decrying all the same things and just as vocally. Yeah, you would think that you could kind of interpret these papal warnings um, as, you know, you better watch your back and, and tone everything down a little, but he doesn't do that at all. So there's still somewhat of an, an uneasy truce, but things begin to escalate. Due to Savonarola's popularity, the Pope offers him a cardinal's hat, and Savonarola's response is, a red hat, I want a hat of blood. So, you know, a a negative. Yeah. And in 1496, the Arabiati in the League have finally had it with Savonarola. So they apply pressure to the Pope. And this time he incorporates Savonarola's congregation, basically taking away his power. I I kind of try to think of it as redistricting. So suddenly he, Savonarola doesn't have anybody to preach to if he's going to follow the Pope's orders. And this, of course, proposes a bit of a predicament for him, because if he goes along with the Pope's you know, increasingly crazy town demands, then everything he's worked for is gone. But if he doesn't, he'll be excommunicated, which is a big, huge deal. So he goes along with it. But again, no one really enforces this order. So he keeps on a preaching. People keep on coming. So... This brings us to probably the most famous episodes of his life, which is the Bonfire of the Vanities. And Savonarola is against so many things, but, you know, while you can't burn vices and sins like greed or adultery or sodomy, you can burn expensive clothes and jewelry and gambling equipment and makeup and pornography. And while he did burn a lot of things, some of his reputation is a bit unfair. He's generally been blamed for destroying great books and art, but according to modern historians, 
there were very few pieces that were destroyed. Although he is connected to the painter Sandro Botticelli, and some say that he came under Savonarola's spell, and that's when his art changed, and that Botticelli himself threw his own paintings on the bonfire. We don't know if this is true or not. A lot of people think it isn't, but all can agree that his paintings did take a serious turn. Yeah, they go from being these beautiful, bright paintings to to being very dark and gloomy. There's a world of difference between them. So we have this tension still between the Pope, the Duke of Milan, and Savonarola. It obviously cannot go on forever. It's got to break at some point. And who's going who's gonna to come out on top? Well, again, Savonarola is forbidden to preach. But now we have it. The Pope finally does excommunicate him. But the Arrabbiati had actually bribed the Roman Curia for this bull of excommunication. And it's riddled with mistakes. I think at one point the Pope actually says he didn't even write it because it's so incredibly bizarre it wouldn't even have been valid. Well, And it's interesting that they have to bribe him too because even though the Pope clearly does not like Savonarola, he's not willing to take this step himself. So this whole thing is risky. Well, and the whole thing is just ridiculous. It's very sneaky. It's very underhanded. The Florentine government knows it. They're a bit up in arms. Savonarola doesn't respond to this at all. He just retreats and he prays. And then Rome says, you know, we'll take that whole excommunication thing back if Florence joins the alliance. So Savonarola preaches on Exodus, which, yeah, that's symbolism for you. And he's not supposed to be preaching, of course. And so the city is threatened with interdict, which we also talked a bit about in our Pazzi conspiracy podcast. But that's when, you know, you're not allowed to worship. Several religious ceremonies are suspended. It's a big deal. And Savonarola starts to write appeals to the church council, but then he burns the letters. Perhaps he just didn't want to go behind the Pope's back or start any kind of internal conflict because, again, he did respect the office of the papacy. But he's clearly concerned about the souls of Florentines. Yes. And so now we enter Fra Domenico de Pescia, who's one of Savonarola's followers. So to give the story, there is another priest, a Franciscan, who said that Savonarola's excommunication was, in fact, valid and that he shouldn't be violating the Pope's order by preaching. And the Franciscans in general weren't huge fans of Savonarola's very passionate, fire-and-brimstone type of methods. They also thought it was ridiculous that he said he communicated directly with God and the saints, that maybe he was even a heretic. So the Franciscan issues a challenge to the Dominicans, and he says if you think this excommunication isn't valid, you should undergo an ordeal by fire. Well, you know, of course. What else would you do? So a representative is picked from each side. It's going to be a a fire-off contest. (laughs) And if the Dominican dies, Savonarola will be banished. If the Franciscan dies, then Fra Francesco is banished. So the people in Savonarola's side hope that he'll perform a miracle, save his guy, save the Dominican. Um, his opponents hope that he'll mess it up. Maybe um, the, the two priests will both die or, or something dramatic will happen and Savonarola will be left looking embarrassed and when exposed as a fraud yeah. and not everything that he said he could be because he set himself up as this incredibly powerful person, you know, with his direct line to God and, and to the saints. And 
So both sides are looking at him to see what he'll prove himself to be. Savonarola himself thinks this ordeal by fire is a terrible idea. So does the Pope. But everyone else is just really excited by the drama of the whole thing. Oh, Florentines. Oh, yes. Savonarola does, however, say that it's been revealed to him that his side will win, although it wasn't mentioned to him whether the ordeal would actually take place, which is a bit convenient. Well, and that's a great way to to stoke the drama without actually having to go through with it. You know, like, why do we even need to burn anybody? Because I know my side is going to win. But anyways, they argue over every little detail of this burning, and it doesn't end up happening. And this leaves everyone pretty dissatisfied, I'd imagine, except for the guys who are going to be burned. People want (laughs) spectacle. They want a miracle. And Savonarola has failed to deliver. And the next day, there is a riot. Savonarola's people are at the Duomo. They're listening to a sermon. And the opposition shows up with rocks, at which point they all retreat to San Marco, which is then attacked, the convent. And there's a bloody fight between both sides, with Savonarola urging an end to the violence, saying, you know, please, let's fight with prayer and not with weapons. But it's taken on a life of its own at this point. There are people fighting on the altar, and Savonarola is completely horrified. I imagine him sitting here wondering how he'd ended up at the center of all of this. So he and Fra Domenico, the the Dominican follower, are taken. And there are two investigations of him and Fra Domenico and Fra Silvestro, the third guy involved in this. And the examiners are all enemies of Savonarola, so clearly this is going to be a really... Fair thing, right from the beginning. He's savagely tortured, um, which, of course, doesn't usually result in reliable confessions. And we're not even sure what he was accused of. Was it armed rebellion? Was it treason? The crimes seem really vaguely defined. The temporal side. Yes. Um, But he's tried in a secular court for crimes against the state and later in an ecclesiastical court for heresy and schism. And he is convicted on all counts. So he's sentenced to hang and burn, as are his two companions. And they receive absolution and die in front of a crowd on May 23rd, 1498. And some of the people in the crowd are actually taunting Savonarola to perform a miracle. Kind of like (laughs) Jesus. Yeah, it reminds me of another biblical story. And we have to note that some people do consider him to be a saint and a martyr. There are many who still clamor for his canonization. I'd also like to add another detail. Apparently... They were all hanged, and then there were chains holding them up on both sides for when they were burned, so it looked a lot like a crucifixion. A flaming crucifixion. Exactly. According to accounts, Savonarola died with the Lord's name on his lips, and people picked up little bits of their bones that were left, and the rest was thrown into the Arno. So to conclude, you have to think about, I guess, what we make of this man because we've got this picture of him as someone who, you know, burns books, which in Sarah's and my opinion is a bit of a cardinal sin. Well, and I'll say it in an art history class, he is so depicted as a villain. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, he's not a big fan of art. Uh, He disapproved of sex. He disapproved of jokes. He prophesied, you know, doom and disaster. But on the good side, he always fought for the people against systems he genuinely believed to be corrupt. And he was right. They were. And he was put on a pedestal by the people, only to be abandoned, uh, watching a church desecrated with fighting in his name. He died in front of a crowd who taunted him and remained faithful. So we're left with a few questions at the end of this. You know, was this whole thing about religion or was it about politics? Was it about power or about higher motives? You know, like, was he really communicating with God and he felt he had to do this? 
and also, was it about one man, you know, Savonarola versus the Catholic Church, or was he just, just an excuse to, to go after Florence? And was he a heretic or a saint? All we have are questions. We don't have answers. So if you have an opinion, please drop us an email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And that brings us to listener mail. So we got a lot of interesting responses about our questions regarding the Amber Room, especially the electricity in the Amber Room. Listener Sean wrote, You mentioned that visitors of the Amber Room mentioned the heat or energy from the walls. Amber was used in early experiments with electricity. In fact, the word electric comes from the Latin word electrum and Greek word electron, both meaning amber. I don't know if the two are related, but having so much amber in one place, maybe even airflow can create enough friction to produce a low charge, which uh, that's certainly an interesting theory. Another email we got from uh, listener John, he sent lots of cool pictures of his own trip to Catherine Palace and the Amber Room. Well, not specifically the Amber Room. He said that we were right and you cannot photograph it. You're not even allowed to linger in it, apparently. They give you the tour highlights, you walk through quickly, and then they talk about it a little more on the other side. But one interesting point he mentioned was that the Catherine Palace is half a mile long, which I think would make for some really good, luxurious indoor jogging. (laughs) Instead of making it to the gym, which I don't think anyone enjoys. So going back to our topic for today, Savonarola, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about censorship, you should check out our article, How Does Banning a Book Work?, on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. And if you'd like to keep up with what we're doing during the week and all the little history tidbits we come across, follow us on Twitter at Mist in History. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 